Hello everyone and welcome to Energy Explored. This podcast covers the challenges of achieving a carbon neutral global economy, cutting emissions of gases and pollutants and setting up new energy systems. Join Reed Smith lawyers and guest speakers as they shed light on the most important trends in emissions control and new fuels. Tune in as we follow the ever-evolving journey through the transition of energy. Hello and welcome to the Energy Explored podcast. I am Christian Blair, an associate here at Reed Smith, and I'm honored to present the conversation today. In the spring, Reed Smith hosted its annual commodities conference here in Houston, where among other things, we had a great conversation about developments at the CFTC, Commodities Futures Trading Commission, and FERC, Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. We think a conversation here is a great way to continue the conversation, and we have with us today Colette Honorable and Jonathan Marcus. Colette Honorable recently served as commissioner at FERC. She was nominated to the position by President Barack Obama in 2014, and she currently leads Reed Smith's Energy Regulatory Group. She's highly regarded as a thought leader and strategist in domestic and international energy sectors. Jonathan Marcus previously served as general counsel of the CFTC. Prior to his time at the CFTC, he served at the U.S. Department of Justice, where he argued and won five cases before the U.S. Supreme Court on a wide variety of matters. Currently, Jonathan serves as a partner at Reed Smith, where he advises clients on commodities, digital assets, regulation, and derivatives. Thank you so much, Christian. And let me say how great it's been to be in the saddle with you and Jonathan as we explore these energy issues across two really key sectors at the CFTC and at FERC. And so thank you for hanging in there with us and you really make us look good. (laughs) Now, let me turn to our star of the hour. And it's really been wonderful to have Jonathan Marcus here with us at Reed Smith. Jonathan, you've celebrated what, your one-year anniversary or almost? Yes, just been through my one year last month. Well, we are ecstatic that you're here in the way that you have taken off with skates really says how much your offering and your capability is resonating in the market. And I want to just touch on, because you've had quite a history at the CFTC in particular, will you just talk a little bit more about your work at the CFTC? Yes. So I spent six years at the CFTC. I came to the CFTC in in 2011, just after the Dodd-Frank Act was enacted. And I was in the position of Deputy General Counsel for Litigation. So I was uh, responsible for handling all the agency's appellate litigation and also responsible for defending the agency's rules when, uh, at the time, there was a lot of anticipation that the CFTC's rules would be challenged because the CFTC was really at the, at the forefront of implementing the Dodd-Frank Act and, and the swaps uh, reforms in particular. So I, I served in that litigation role for two years and successfully defended a lot of the agency's rules. I then was appointed to uh, be general counsel in, in 2013 and served in that role for almost four years. And in that role, really kind of oversaw everything the agency was doing and, and provided advice to the chairman and the commission on kind of, you know, all the significant legal issues that the agency was addressing at the time and played a significant role both in the sort of implementation of Dodd-Frank and, and on all the rulemakings that were promulgated to implement Dodd-Frank and also was involved in the agency's sort of 
first efforts to to regulate digital assets and so that was a that was another kind of significant development at the time that that I was general counsel. Wow, you covered a lot of ground there and it's going to be really neat to explore some of those with you on today's Energy Explored podcast, but I want to mention one thing. Did you talk at all about your time at the DOJ? Oh, yeah, sure. And I so earlier in my career, I spent uh, nearly 10 years in the Department of Justice. I started in the uh, criminal division in the appellate section. So my responsibility there was to handle criminal government, criminal cases on appeal. So both defending convictions that were obtained in the district court and challenging orders that were adverse to the government in the district court, like orders suppressing evidence or or dismissing an indictment. So I, I was in that role for about six years. And then I got a position in the Solicitor General's office as an assistant to the, to the SG. And in that role, I briefed numerous cases in the Supreme Court and uh, got to argue five cases in the three and a half years or so that I was there and won all five, which was, which was great. And they, unlike in the criminal division in the Solicitor General's office, you kind of, you know, you're not limited to sort of one particular substantive area of law. So I handled a wide range of cases. Actually, in fact, the last case I argued was a, was a tax case. So anyway, that was, that was a, a fabulous experience at DOJ. So I have very, very fond memories of both uh, DOJ and the CFTC. I imagine, and Christian, thank you for mentioning that really incredible stat for Jonathan. Five wins in three and a half years at the U.S. Supreme Court, that, that's unheard of. But I imagine, Jonathan, it really helps you in supporting clients and enforcement matters as well, the experience that you've discussed. Oh, absolutely. And I've, I've been doing a fair amount of that here uh, at Reed Smith. I'm currently involved in advising clients in several uh, CFTC investigations that are that are ongoing. So yes, I think that both both the kind of analytical skills that I developed at, at DOJ and of course working in the criminal division and also you know my time at the CFTC learning all the substantive law you know under the Commodity Exchange Act and CFTC regulations has put me in a really good position to advise clients who are facing investigations by the CFTC. Well, thank you. And I think we've now laid the groundwork for the fact that our listeners should really listen into the the next portion of our podcast where we will really dig into what's happening at the CFTC. Jonathan, I understand there have been a number of significant changes at the CFTC recently. Can you talk about those with us? Absolutely, Colette. Before jumping into the interesting legal and regulatory developments going on right now at the CFTC, I do think it's a good idea to talk a little bit about what the commission currently looks like, as a lot has changed uh, just this year. For starters, we have an almost entirely new commission. Former Commissioner Russ Benham was confirmed and sworn in as the 15th chairman of the CFTC this January. The chairman is probably best known for his spearheading of a 2020 report when he was a commissioner that comprehensively address the risks that climate change presents to the financial markets. Equally significant, a little later on in March of this year, the Senate unanimously confirmed President Biden's four CFTC commissioner nominees, two Democrats and two Republicans. This is the first time the CFTC has had a full complement of commissioners in a very long time. 
This new group is notable for both their expertise and their diversity. All four of the commissioners are women, which is a first for the agency. The new additions on the Democratic side are Kristen Johnson and Christy Goldsmith-Romero, and on the Republican side, Summer Mersinger and Caroline Pham. Each of them brings a lot of experience to the table. Commissioner Johnson is a former law professor who also spent substantial time working at financial institutions and in private practice. Commissioner Goldsmith Romero spent many years at the Treasury Department as the Special Inspector General for the TARP program. Commissioners Mersinger and Pham both previously served at the CFTC, with Commissioner Mersinger also bringing Capitol Hill experience and Commissioner Pham bringing substantial industry experience. That is incredible to hear, Jonathan, and I imagine that this would probably not only be a first at the CFTC in terms of four women who are serving alongside the chairman in such key roles of of an independent agency, but probably across the board. So I just wanted to pause there to reflect upon the incredible leadership of not only President Biden, but the Senate as well in, in confirming such an historic panel of CFTC commissioners. Yes, it is. It is indeed historic, Colette. And just the other thing I was going to note is that just sort of at a you know high level, it's really remarkable to think that we're now over 10 years past the enactment of the Dodd-Frank Act, which gave the CFTC authority to regulate the swaps market. The CFTC's implementation of that law is now basically complete. The CFTC has been in the news a lot recently, not so much for its regulation of the swaps market or its traditional regulation of the futures market, but due to the meteoric proliferation of crypto assets and all that has come along with that. So there's a lot to discuss on the crypto side, but because there's so much to discuss there, that's for another day. So I won't be, I won't be focusing on, on crypto today. I'll be focusing on the non-crypto docket of the CFTC. Thanks for the teaser, Jonathan, and for our listeners. Stay tuned because in a separate podcast, Jonathan will wax eloquent on all things crypto. And it's really such a busy time right now, as Jonathan mentioned. And if I could turn to another topic at the CFTC, the agency has certainly been in the news quite a bit lately with regard to crypto asset regulation, but certainly the CFTC has many other responsibilities. What has it been focusing on outside of crypto? Well, Colette, the the commission on Wednesday held its first in-person open meeting at the CFTC since the beginning of the pandemic back in 2020. At the meeting, the commission voted unanimously to approve two new proposals. The first proposal is designed to address the governance of derivatives clearing organizations, known as DCOs, with the aim of broadening the input a DCO receives in formulating its risk management policies. This proposal appears to have originated in concerns that were expressed when certain clearinghouses began clearing Bitcoin futures about five years ago. Some members of the clearinghouses complained that they weren't consulted and viewed the clearing of such products as presenting unique risk issues. So the CFTC's proposal is really a response to this concern and aims to ensure that the clearing members and the customers of the clearing members, who of course have an important stake in the stability of the DCO, participate more in the risk governance process than they have in the past. 
that's the first proposal. The second item is a proposed order that would find, based on a request from the Japan Financial Services Agency, that Japan's capital and financial reporting requirements for non-bank swap dealers are comparable to the Commodity Exchange Act's requirements and CFTC regulations. As many of our listeners know, the Dodd-Frank Act sought greater international harmonization among regulatory regimes. And one of the ways that can be accomplished is by allowing foreign entities that do business in the United States or with U.S. customers to comply with their home country's regulatory regime, provided, of course, that it offers safeguards that are comparable to those offered in the United States. Significantly, the proposal here emphasizes that comparability will be found based on the outcome of a regime's requirements, rather than based on a line-by-line or element-by-element comparison of the rules. I think by applying this more flexible approach, there's a greater chance going forward that more foreign regimes will be found comparable to the CFTCs. Indeed, and thank you for that preview. That really is an area to watch. It really is a fascinating time at the CFTC. And I would go further to say, Jonathan, even among the independent agencies of the federal government, we've observed certainly President Biden and the executive level or cabinet level agencies really being focused on climate change. And and clearly it's a priority of President Biden as he issued an executive order focused on climate change on day one of his administration. I think it's also interesting to see how these independent agencies who are not required to carry the mantle of the administration, but who are equally focused on climate change, agencies like the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, the Securities and Exchange Commission, and now the CFTC, Would you take a few minutes and share with us what's happening at the CFTC on the climate change front? Yes, thanks, Colette. You're absolutely right. I mean, this is clearly one of the biggest priorities of the Biden administration, if not the biggest. And of course, there was significant news recently that there was a breakthrough in Congress and that, you know, that the Democrats are going to be able to push through some some measures that will that will address climate change. It really is a, a whole-of-government effort, and the CFTC is, is playing a significant role in that. In fact, tackling climate change is, is very much a priority of Chairman Benham's. As I mentioned at the kind of top of the podcast, as a commissioner, Benham led the effort to issue a comprehensive report on the risks climate change presents to the financial markets. And he's now made it clear as chairman that climate change will continue to be at the top of his list of priorities. In fact, just recently, the CFTC's efforts on climate change were the subject of Chairman Benham's remarks at a meeting of the Financial Stability Oversight Council. That really fits in with the whole of government effort that you mentioned that the Biden administration expects. And in terms of what the CFTC has done on climate, the first significant step took place over a year ago in March 2021, when then acting Chairman Benham established the Climate Risk Unit. That unit's purpose is to focus the agency's resources and expertise on the role that derivatives, products, and markets can play both in addressing the physical risks of climate change, like floods, wildfires, and more powerful storms, and also the transition risks in moving to a net zero economy. More recently, the CFTC has begun to focus on issues around the integrity of the underlying carbon markets on which CFTC 
derivatives markets would be based. To that end, in early June, the Commission hosted a voluntary carbon markets convening with the aim of gathering information from voluntary carbon market participants, including the relationship between derivatives products and the underlying cash offset markets. This is really crucial because the integrity of these underlying markets is just going to be critical for the derivative products to serve their risk management and price discovery purposes. And one more significant development on the climate front, in the wake of that convening, the CFTC issued a request for information or an RFI uh, on climate-related risk. The CFTC indicated that the information it gathers pursuant to the RFI will not only help educate the Commission on climate-related financial risks, but may be used to inform future Commission actions, including guidance, policy statements, or new rules. The RFI focuses on several different areas, including climate risk data collection and dissemination, disclosure requirements, new products to address climate-related physical and transition risks, and improving the integrity of the underlying voluntary carbon markets, which again was the subject of the the convening in early June. Just recently also, the Commission extended the time period to respond to the RFI by 60 days to October 7. So market participants now have additional time to put together their thoughts and responses to the Commission's request. And I think this is a good development because I think the whole the purpose of this exercise is for the commission to get as much you know useful information as it can. So giving I think giving market participants more time makes a whole lot of sense. So this is a real area to watch. I think the development of the derivatives markets, you know, for these kind of new innovative climate risk products is really going to be fascinating and, and I think a crucial component of the Biden administration's efforts to combat climate change. Jonathan, thank you. As you were speaking, it really brings to mind for me as a former regulator at the state and federal level and now someone that supports clients in these spaces, a number of our clients are very active and a lot of stakeholders in this space, both at the CFTC and at FERC and at the SEC, focusing on submitting comments, focusing on advocacy to help shape these policies. We're going to look back in time, let's say 10 years from now, we're going to look back at this time and think how incredible it was and that we had a role in helping to shape the future of climate policy and regulation, and particularly as it relates to markets, whether it's in the derivative space or for me in wholesale electricity markets of all types, it's really incredible to step back and look at it as a broad swath of activity. Absolutely. It's really, I mean, it's really remarkable. And it really requires, you know, as you're suggesting, that all parts of the government be involved in this effort. It's a it's a tremendous kind of undertaking to try to shift the whole energy sector you know, to a lower emissions model. Indeed. And to leverage policy and rules and regulations as a tool to drive that progress. So I'm, I'm heartened in knowing that you're on the case and with us as well. Speaking of cases, Jonathan, I want to turn to what has been happening at the Supreme Court recently. And I know that you are a watcher of those decisions of all types. And this is one where we both have been quite interested. The recent 
Supreme Court decision involving the EPA appears to really be impacting the president's climate agenda that we've been speaking about today and really curtailing it in a way. How, if at all, will it affect the CFTC? Yeah, that's a great question, Colette. I mean, we've, as we've just been talking about, you know, there's so many government agencies involved in the effort to address climate change. And so the president is relying very heavily on his, you know, the federal agencies that are under his supervision and also the independent agencies. So this recent Supreme Court decision, West Virginia versus EPA, that you mentioned is very significant because the court in this case did curtail the authority of, of federal agencies to take certain actions, and in, in this particular case, to take action uh, relating to and to address climate change. In this case, the Supreme Court ruled by a 6-3 vote that the EPA did not have the authority under the Clean Air Act to limit carbon emissions using certain methods that would have required energy producers to shift their production from generation with higher emitting resources like coal to generation with lower emitting resources like natural gas and renewables. And the court rested much of its decision on something it called the major questions doctrine. And as articulated by the court majority, the major questions doctrine is effectively a non-delegation principle that prohibits administrative agencies from taking actions on issues with major political or economic implications without express authority delegated by Congress. So this is a really significant decision because, you know, as everyone knows, Congress often you know, delegates a lot of authority to administrative agencies. Congress can't kind of legislate at a really specific detailed level on the types of issues that you know, the agencies, the federal agencies are addressing on a day-to-day basis, which require tremendous time, study, and expertise. And so the ruling that there, there must be kind of an express delegation on a, on a particular issue is, is quite significant. And it's really not clear kind of what the limiting principle is to the application of the doctrine. And it's, it's, it's absolutely certain that the doctrine is going to become a frequent claim or argument in challenges to federal agency action in the coming years, with the challenger uh, claiming that the agency action that was taken, whatever it may have been, was a major action. You know, in other words, that, it had, that the action w- would have major political or economic implications. And so while the case involved the EPA, the court's ruling clearly extends far beyond the EPA to all administrative agencies implementing federal laws. So agencies like the CFTC and FERC, you know, in, in adopting rules with significant economic or political implications, are going to have to consider whether they're going to be exposed to a legal challenge on the ground that Congress didn't expressly delegate to the agency the authority to resolve the particular issue at hand in the manner the agency intends to resolve it. This is a really, for anyone who follows administrative law or is regulated by a federal agency, this is a really important area to watch to see just how far the Supreme Court is going to go in restricting the ability of agencies to act, because there surely are going to be more, as I mentioned before, there are going to be more challenges, more follow-on actions to this decision. And given the ambitions of the Biden administration, this, is, this decision will present a significant challenge to the administration and to all the agencies 
that are trying to implement the president's agenda on climate. So again, in that light, sort of the recent news that Congress recently passed legislation that will forward the president's climate agenda is quite significant. Jonathan, thank you for that perspective. And and I would note too, from an energy regulatory perspective, this decision doesn't halt the ability of the EPA to act. It certainly limits it. I would also say, Jonathan, that it raises more questions than provides answers, because to your point, now any decision that's adverse could be raised on appeal as one that concerns the major questions doctrine, which I think we need more fleshing out of that, what that really means and and how it would apply to the work of these agencies. And to be fair, Congress couldn't possibly take up these issues. They don't have enough resources or time. And so we really need a clear understanding of who's on first with regard to the development of the rules and regulations vested in this instance with a very important agency in the Environmental Protection Agency. So I think we should all stay tuned there. Absolutely, Colette. I think you're, you're right. It's just, it, you know, we have to we're going to have to see how things develop. It's a new doctrine, and it, it is not clear what its boundaries are at this time. We'll see soon. As we're rounding out this podcast, by the way, this has been terrific to have this conversation with you for all of our friends to hear. Just otherwise, Jonathan and I are just an office apart, and so it's great to, to catch up in this way. Jonathan, as we are wrapping up today, we can't conclude a CFTC discussion without talking a moment about enforcement. Can you tell us what's happening with the CFTC enforcement division today? Yes, and Colette, it is so true that, I mean, enforcement is is always a substantial component of, of the CFTC's work. And so it's it would be a major omission not to talk a, a little bit about what's happening on the enforcement side at the CFTC. And there are some, I think there are some areas of enforcement that we can identify as priorities today. The first area I would highlight is, is insider trading or, or the misappropriation of non-public information. This is an enforcement power that was largely given to the CFTC via the Dodd-Frank Act in a provision that largely mirrors the language of SEC Rule 10b-5. And FERC also has this similar authority, the anti-manipulation and anti-fraud authority. And while the commission was sort of, you know, kind of slow to start bringing these types of cases, in recent years, the commission really has stepped up its enforcement in the insider trading kind of misappropriation of non-confidential information area. It's really an area to keep one's eye on, even if it's still kind of comprises a relatively small piece of the enforcement division portfolio. And just I'll just highlight one case that the commission brought earlier this year in the energy space. The commission charged an energy company employee for misappropriating confidential natural gas block trade order information that belonged to his employer. The trader allegedly directed the natural gas block trades to a brokerage firm that traded against the the company's orders in exchange for a share of the brokerage commissions. So those brokerage commissions then went back to the employee who provided the non-public information about the block trade orders. 
So there's the commission's really focusing on this area more. And so I, I think you're going to see, you know, kind of more actions going forward. Um, you sort of, you have some cases involving customers and brokers uh, like this one. And, so, you know, that, that's kind of a common fact pattern. You also have the employee and employer where the employee is sort of trading ahead of the employer. But I think you're going to continue to see the commission, you know, sort of seeking to expand the, the ways in which it can use its insider trading authority. And on that note, I do want to mention that this DOJ recently brought the first criminal insider trading case involving the trading of crypto assets. It's also notable that the SEC took action as well, taking the position that the crypto assets that are the subject of the DOJ criminal complaint are securities and that the defendants committed securities fraud. So this is a very significant development in the crypto space. And, and the reason I'm mentioning this is CFTC Commissioner Kristen Johnson wrote a statement about the DOJ and SEC actions, indicating that she will be focusing on insider trading in the digital asset space overseen by the CFTC. So again, that's sort of a, a topic for another uh, podcast, but I just I did want to mention it because it is a, it's a significant development. A second area that the CFTC is focused on on enforcement is spoofing. Spoofing involves a situation where a trader places an order to buy or sell, let's say, a futures contract, uh, which they intend to cancel before executing the order. So the key thing is the trader intend to cancel the order before executing it. Congress made this a violation of the CEA as part of the Dodd-Frank Act on the theory that spoofing sends deceptive signals to the market and can move the price of the product. There have been several major recent spoofing-related actions against small and large entities alike. And it's not just the CFTC that's been bringing a lot of spoofing actions. DOJ has taken an aggressive approach to spoofing as well, charging it as wire fraud, commodities fraud, and even RICO. And recently, some J.P. Morgan traders actually were convicted of such offenses. And of course, there's, there's sort of the bread and butter CFTC authority over fraud and manipulation, I mean, this is an area that sort of the CFTC perennially focuses on. So uh, I think it's, you know, this is just an area that CFTC watchers and market participants really always need to, to think about and focus on. It's really, it's, their, it's the CFTC's bread and butter authority, and they're sure to exercise it forcefully. And then kind of it's in sort of distinction to the fraud and manipulation authority, which really is at the core of the agency's powers. The, recently, the, the commission has also been bringing cases that are uh, sort of related to the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. A few years ago, the CFTC's then enforcement director indicated that the CFTC would begin focusing on the FCPA under the theory that violations of the CPA may in some cases involve fraud or manipulation that could uh, impact the derivatives markets. So this is really something to, to be, a, be aware of. There's, you know, the CFTC, I think, is coordinating closely with the SEC and DOJ on these types of FCPA prosecutions. And earlier this year, the CFTC levied a massive civil penalty in an FCPA-related case. It was a billion-dollar-plus fine against a commodities firm. So while they haven't brought a lot of these cases, they are clearly kind of you know, focused on the FCPA now. It's a relatively recent development, and so everyone should just be aware of that. 
So I think, I think we've covered a lot of ground here today uh, without delving too much into crypto, which I, as I mentioned, I'll, I'll address in another podcast. Thanks so much to Christian and to Colette for assisting with this and participating with me in the podcast today. Thank you so much, Jonathan. We covered a lot of ground and I regret that we ended on such a scary note talking about enforcement. <laughs> it's a great way to get everyone's attention. Jonathan, thank you for taking the time to succinctly and in such great fashion highlight some of the key issues going on at the CFTC today. I imagine if you're not a CFTC watcher, you may pay closer attention now that you've heard from our newest colleague in the energy regulatory space and Jonathan Marcus. It's been a delight to be with you today, Jonathan. I hope we get to pair up again to cover other issues. And without further ado, I'll turn it back over to Christian. Thank you, Colette. And thank you, Jonathan, for the insightful conversation today about developments at the CFTC. It is clear that Jonathan has deep industry expertise, as you pointed out, Colette. So as always, please feel free to reach out to our presenters at reesmith.com. Thank you for listening today, and we hope you join us again soon on the Energy Explored podcast. Thank you. Energy Explored is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Allie McCardle. For more information about Reed Smith's energy and natural resources practice, please email energyexplored at reedsmith.com. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and reedsmith.com and our social media accounts at ReadSmith LLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to ReadSmith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.